Well, take your Bible this morning. We have the Lord's table set before us, and so our time is just a little bit limited. But we want to turn back to John 15. John 15, that great section where Jesus said that I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. And he went on to tell us that we are the branches and there's branches that bear fruit that he prunes that it would bear more. And then there's branches that bear no fruit and they are in verse 6 gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But the question I want to begin with this morning for you as we look to John 15 is what are the evidences of saving faith? I mean, what does saving faith look like? And what are the evidences of a true saving faith? I think I could ask this question How can you know if you're abiding in Jesus Christ and Christ abides in you? How can you even know that you're connected to the vine? I mean, it would appear that the branches that did not bear fruit were connected, but they were, as I said in verse 6, gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So how can you know? I mean, certainly we've seen a little bit of the positive nature of saving faith. Look at verse 8 of chapter 15. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit... And so prove to be my disciples. So clearly there's a marker there in 15.8 that fruit, spiritual fruit, is evidence of a saving faith in Christ. And we noted that spiritual fruit with both attitude fruit. You say, what do you mean by that? This, do you walk in the spirit? Are you characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness? faithfulness, self-control? Are you characterized by attitude fruit? And is there, secondly, action fruit that's demonstrating that you're connected to the vine outwardly? And there's many things that are action fruit done in the name of Christ. But some years back, I think I had told you this one time, I woke up one night very, very early, and I got up and we were studying the gospel of 1 John, and I pinned four tests that affirm a person is born of God. I don't know if you remember that. It doesn't happen to me often. came out of the overflow of my study of 1 John, but I got up, and I was preparing something for Hume Lake on the doctrine of assurance. And so rather than just sit there for an hour and a half, you know, I just got up, and I pinned these four truths, and I called them four legs of a sturdy chair. And they were marks of assurance, and here's the way you can know, and I'll just touch on them. There was a doctrinal test, number one, the first leg. Do you believe on the person of Christ? It's one thing to say that you believe in God. I would think that many people would say they believe in God, but if you believe in God the Father, you need to believe in God the Son. Secondly, though, as you can see, there is a moral test. In other words, you can't just say something. There's a moral test. There's another pillar of that leg coming down. Are you obedient to the commands of God? This is a mark of assurance. It's one thing to say that you know him. It's one thing to say that you're born of him. But it's another thing 
to be obedient to the commands of God. Now again, as I've said many times from this pulpit, that is not sinless perfection. That is the direction of your life. That is the direction of your heart. Thirdly, the purity test is that another leg that comes down on a strong chair is that test of the purity test, and namely that you've overcome the world, and what overcomes the world, 1 John 5, is your faith. But then fourthly, that fourth leg that comes down is the relational test, that you love God and that you love others. And that second phrase of that fourth pillar coming down is where we are. Not only do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but here, notably, you love others. And what John 15 is asking of you is do you love others in the body of Christ? Do you love one another in the body of Christ? So as we follow this argument in John Chapter 15, verses 9 through 17, there are four pillars of our relationship with God when you abide in Christ and Christ abides in you. Okay, there's four pillars. These pillars are bound by a relationship and they describe what happens when you abide in Christ and Christ abides in you. We looked at the first pillar a couple of weeks ago. In 15, 9 through 11, it was this. It was a relationship established in love. A relationship that was established in love. When you abide in Christ and he abides in you, this relationship was built, framed on love. We noted there in verse 9, as the father loved the son. And then it said in verse 9, 10, as the Father loved the Son, it says that the Son loves you. And it's amazing that with that same love that God the Father loved God the Son is the same love that God the Son loves you. And then thirdly, under that established relationship was the saint's love for the Savior. In fact, look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so the saint's love for the Savior is revealed in the keeping of his commands. And and I want to say, I don't think I brought this out as clearly as my heart wanted to a couple weeks ago, and we'll touch on it again in John 16. When you keep his commands... There is an attached blessing to that. It's not as though Jesus is saying, here, disciples, or here, you who are abiding in me, memorize the Bible. Or it's not as though he's just saying, keep his commandments, and it's some rote thing that you do. Like, here's the yellow pages, memorize the yellow pages just because I said so. No, look what happens in verse 11, he said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full or made complete. At the outside of obeying the Father's commands is an inward joy. You know, I said a couple times and certainly meant what I said that this obedience doesn't have to be emotional 
I said at times it doesn't have to be only what you experience personally, and that be true. But I do want to be very clear with you that when you as a mom, when you as a dad, when you as a sophomore and a junior, you as a seventh grader, obey the commands of Scripture, God Almighty, through His Word, by the indwelling of the Spirit of God, will give you joy. And joy is something you experience. Joy is something that wells up out of your heart as you obey the Scripture, as you obey His commands. You are not merely going through the the emotions, if you will, or the motions. In fact, when you and I sin, we got the Lord's table set today, you can lose your, what? Joy. And so here he gives us his commands for the purpose here that your joy might be made full. And so when we sing this morning, Christ is enough, I pray that that would be your heart. He gives you joy overflowing. And I would just say personally, I experience joy every single day in my walk with Christ. And I don't even quite know how to explain it to you. Other than it is a deep abiding joy of contentment bound up in his promises that his word grants to you. And as you walk in obedience to those commands, he fills you with an inner joy that the world knows absolutely nothing about. So though I'm telling you don't look for the experience, when you obey him, he's going to give you that kind of joy. No wonder when David prayed in Psalm 51, he said, restore unto me the, what? The joy of my salvation. When you choose to walk in his path, he's going to make your joy full. And when you disobey, then, okay, we need to confess our sin and come back to him. But we left off, look at verse 10, where he said, if you keep my commandments. Now, just stop there for a second. You might ask, maybe someone would ask, hey, but which ones? Which ones? I mean, keep his commandments, and I think in the big purview of Scripture, we would say that the Great Commission says to observe all that I commanded you. I understand that. But when he said keep his commandments, it's amazing that he reduces here the commandments to just one. You say, well, what is it? Well, look at our text. It's verse 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so I bring you from that first pillar that it's a relationship established in love to our time as we prepare for communion. Secondly, that second pillar, it's a relationship that's shared in community. It's a relationship that is shared in community. And I don't think it will be hard to understand. In this relationship shared in community, we see first an exhortation to love, and then secondly, we see the extent of love. There's an exhortation to love, there's the extent of love, and then I will finish with an application for you. So listen carefully because there is something 
that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, by the lips of Christ, wants you to do. In fact, your ability to do this will be proof. It will show the root of your salvation by the fruit that is born in your life on this one commandment. In fact, I think this one commandment is just so huge. Let's, let's look at that relationship shared in community first and excerpt, the exhortation to love. The exhortation to love. Do you see it there in verse 12? He says, Jesus speaking, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So he told us here earlier to abide in him in verse 7. And now he commands us, or I could put it that word, he exhorts us to love one another. He's telling you if you name Christ in this place, that you are to love one another. Now certainly we know that we are to love God first. He's already said that in this gospel. But he focuses here on this shared relationship of loving one another because our love to one another is proof of our love for God. Now it's interesting and okay take the statement for what it's worth. Nothing is said here, at least in this place, about doctrine. Nothing is said in this place about church size. There's nothing said here about the cultural wars of worship. But what he did say to you, and the one command that he's going to give to you, when he says, love me and keep my commandments, is this, is that you love one another. And I had to think to myself that, Nothing is more simple to grasp, and nothing is more difficult to obey. You're called to love one another, and so your relationship with Christ, far from being individualistic, this relationship is shared with believers in community, and you're commanded to love one another. And certainly it's a relationship, as I've mentioned, that's established on the Father's love for the Son. That's the groundwork. It's based on the Son's love for the saints, yes. But now you are to act on this love and love one another. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen this. We just turn back maybe a page to John 13. Remember, he said this, and he's in that scene there. He washed the disciples' feet. Remember, it's Thursday night still. And uh, he had just partake, partook of the, the, the supper there. And he washed their feet. He said that one will betray him. But then he said this in 1334. A new commandment I give to you. And here's the commandment this morning to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Now, he said this is a new commandment in 1334. Let me just touch on that. Well, in one sense, it's certainly not new. In one sense, it's not new because you and I know that there is the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 5, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And uh, these things I am commanding you today. 
you're to love God. That was stated in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Leviticus 19, specifically in verse 18, it says you shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. So it's not new in one sense, but it's new for at least four reasons, okay? New for at least four reasons, and I'll just quickly tell you this. First, it's new in this sense that our Lord brought together Deuteronomy chapter 6 and he brought together Leviticus chapter 19. I think sometimes the Jews used to separate that. Love God, and then they would say in Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself, but they had never come together until the New Testament. So the Lord Jesus brought them together because you remember in Matthew 22, the lawyer said, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great, Jesus said, and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So first it's new in that he brought them together. Secondly, at least according to 1334, it's new in that not only did he bring them together, but secondly, he modeled this love. In fact, it says there in 34, 1334, just as I have loved you. So it has to be new in that he modeled it. And certainly in the context, he's going to model that love. You notice that he says it in the past tense as I have loved you. He just is going to take the, you know, the base and gird himself with a towel and He's going to model that by washing their feet. And certainly uh, the greater act of loving you is the act of going to the cross. He's just the night before Thursday night that he will go on to demonstrate that love. So new in that he brought them together. Secondly, he modeled that love. Thirdly, it's new in extent. New in extent. You say, Scott, what do you mean by that? Well, of course, you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. He identified one's neighbor as anyone who needs our help, regardless of nationality, regardless of rank, regardless of position, regardless even in that context if it's one's enemy. And so it's new in, this, in the extent of it that the Jewish people said, I'm going to love my fellow Jew, but I'm not going to love my neighbor. And in the New Testament, Jesus extended that love commandment to a neighbor to be anyone who has a need. And finally, fourthly, I would say it's new in quality. In other words, you are to love others in the same manner as Christ has loved you. And he loved you with a selfless sacrifice that would even die for another. Now, let me just say here, just a note, that this Habitual desire to love other believers is a love, at least in this context, towards other believers. You'll see that as we go. I know in Matthew 5, it says, love your enemies. But here specifically, John 15, John 13, you're commanded to love one another. You're commanded to love one another in this building. Now, you might ask, well, what is love? What does it mean to love another? Just let me say this, you of course know this is agape love. There's different definitions of love. This is when he says, I want you to love one another. I want you to agape one another. And that is a love that is sacrificial. 
it's not necessarily a love that's a feeling, a feeling that you feel like you're going to get when you feel like the feeling's coming on. That's not the point biblically. This type of love is an act of the will. It is always an unselfish love, which it's real easy to understand, seeks the welfare of someone else. So important is this that he says, listen, this is how you're going to demonstrate if you're really mine is that you have an unselfish love which seeks the welfare of another. It is marked, if you will, by selfless devotion and biblical love, GCV, always meets another's need. It is often translated in this big massive lexical work called Kittle. It's translated this way usually to show love, to show love. It's not possessive, if you will. It's a self-giving love. And of course, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13, on the love chapter, love is, right, patient and all the descriptions, all those descriptions in 1 Corinthians 13 are verbs. There's something you do on behalf of another. So this new commandment requires us to love as Jesus loved us. His sacrifice is our model To love others. So put this in your mind. Here's the exhortation. What is it? He's command. I don't care who you are. You might be in seventh grade. You you might be in eighth grade. You might be married to someone that's not easy to love. And the Lord Jesus Christ is exhorting you. That's the point. To love one another. To demonstrate that love. I I would just stop. Can you imagine what would happen to our homes if this took place? Can you imagine what would happen to our church as this continues to take place? Here's the exhortation. It is to love one another, and I'm so thankful that we get a worship today, but really as we go forward, what would be sweet is is we're not only known by the truth we preach, but by by our love for one another. And I just, I do want to say thank you because I know so many of you tirelessly do that. You do that every week with your home. You do that every week with your pocketbook. You do that every week with your gift. You do tireless service for the Lord that demonstrates love for people. So there's the exhortation of love to love one another. And secondly, the extent of love. The extent of love. Jesus says, as I have loved you. Now, it's kind of amazing. You say, well, what does that mean in verse 9? Go back to verse chapter 15. He says, as the Father loved me, 15, 9, so I have loved you. Amazing statement. He loves you. It's hard to say this. With the same love by which the Father loved him. Do you understand that? And the same love that God the Father showered down on his Son, is the same love that the Son loves you. He loves you with the same love by which the Father loved him. And as God the Father loves God the Son, God the Son loves you with the same love. It is phenomenal. (laughs) And maybe this becomes that basis of the extent of that love. In fact, the Lord has loved us, not with an imperfect human love, but rather with a love which has existed within the Trinity. 
It is a love without beginning. It is a love without end. It is a love without measure. It is a love without change. It is vast. It is broad. It is wide. It is the unmeasurable love of God. No wonder Paul told us to pray in Ephesians 3 that we would know something of the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of Christ for you. And so he said, even in 13.1, having loved his own who were in the world. Remember in 13.1 he said, he loved them to the end. In other words, he loved you to the max. He says, as I, you love another as I have loved you. Now the extent of that love, look down in John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. There's the extent of it, his love. There's an exhortation, but the extent is that there's no greater love than someone laying his life down for his friends. Now, I could go into a number of illustrations, I won't, of people who sacrificed for and on behalf of others. But this is the ultimate love, isn't it? That the sinless one stepped in your place. We'll come to that t- place at the Lord's table in just a moment. But the point is, on the extent of his love, is that the Lord gives. He, he gives everything. Jesus gives everything. That's how you're to love. He gives even his own life for you. There is no greater proof of love than that. In fact, you would agree with me, the sacrifice of our Lord at the cross is the greatest demonstration of love ever displayed. It is bound up in his substitutionary atonement that will partake of the bread, partake of the cup, will take of the bread which represents his death in his fleshly body, not fleshly in the sense of sinful and The fact that he took on flesh and then we will remember him as we take the cup, his shared blood. Look back just for a moment at John 10. This is the extent of his love. Do you remember that when he's describing in John 10 the fact that he is the good shepherd? And he said this in verse 11, contrasting it in 10.10 to the thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in other words this is greater love this is the highest love he's the good shepherd and he laid down his life for you look at John chapter 10 look at verse 17 he said for this reason the father loves me Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And we know that promise, do we not, in in Romans, for why we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, and that God namely shows his love uh, for us, and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. He died in your place. So listen. A believer then, is this you? It's searching, is to love others in the same manner as Christ loved you with a selfless sacrifice that would even die for another. He just has one command this morning, that we would love one another. It's the proof, if you will, of our salvation. 
You need to abide in him, bear spiritual proof, and prove to be my disciples. And here's how you abide in his love, by loving another. And so let me say it this way. Our love is seen here not only in our obedience, yes, in 1510, but it's revealed in our love for the brethren, okay? In fact, will you glance down at 15, look at verse 14? He says, you are my friends, and then he qualifies it, if you do what I command you. So certainly, he gave his life for his friends. Verse 14, who are his friends if you follow in obedience to this command? Let me just take a moment with you. Would you turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2? Let me just show you, and I'm turning you there to demonstrate how important it is to love one another. And in other words, you can't be at this church, uh, as you're turning to 1 John 2, you can't be one and done here. Not, not when I read the New Testament. You say, what do you mean one and done? Like, I'm glad you're here today. It's a spacious auditorium. You're graciously here. Some of you are new. Some of you have been here. But your response to his love is to love one another, and you have a response somewhere. I mean, if you're visiting today, I understand that. But if you're not visiting, more than welcoming you to the breakfast at Easter you, of course, want to be there because that's where the body of Christ is. That's where the one another's are put in place, both here and during the week. But you're not just one and done. You say, well, why? Because Jesus told me that you have a command to love one another. Now, I understand and you understand that's not always in the bounds of a local church. I get that. But I think it shows there primarily. And you can't do this if you're here every other month. You can't do this if you're modeling for your kids sports that take you out seven out of eight weeks in a row. At some point, you need to make sure this is part of your heart. Why? Because you see the love of Christ, and, and you want to bear that to people and show that. Look at 1 John 2, okay, verse 6. It's almost hard to believe he's this clear. Whoever says he abides in him, verse 6, 2, 6, ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked, Verse 7, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is what, is, is what the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Here it is. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. That, that's... In other words, you can say you're in the light, but if you hate your brother or you're indifferent to your brother, verse 9 says you're still in the darkness. In other words, if you claim to know God, but you actively hate your brother or you're actively indifferent to your brother and sister, you are in the darkness. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin, that we don't struggle with forgiveness, but God's going to override your heart because Jesus Christ spent his life and died on the cross for me and died on the cross for you. And you're called to extend that love in the same manner that he loved you, but you can't love people. Jesus said this is, here John the Apostle says, this is one of the proofs of salvation. And indifference is not good either. I mean, think of Judas who followed Jesus but ultimately returned to the darkness so John sees some in fellowship with the church, but then they've gone back again to the darkness. 
fact, look at 1 John 2.10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. In other words, if you abide in the light, you love your brother. Look over at 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Uh, 3, 9, no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who the children, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. How, John? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not, what? Love his brother. This is not a small command here. This is one that comes and flows out of our abiding relationship. The point would be, is the first pillar, it is a relationship established in love. The second pillar, it is a relationship shared in community. None of you can ever be called to be a lone ranger. Christian, I don't know, I, I just made that up. Um, do you ever watch that? The Lone Ranger in Tonto, I used to watch that as a young boy. He kind of did everything by himself. There's no such thing as a lone ranger in this place and in God's church and in God's body. In fact, it says very clear there, nor the one who does not love his brother. Would you glance down at 1 John 3, 11? For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should, there it is again, underline it, 3:11. love one another. What a, a statement. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of life into death. How, John? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What a statement there. Everyone, verse 15, who hates his brother is a murderer, and we know that no murderer has eternal life. There's our word, abiding in him. By this we know love, how John, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the God's love abide in him? Do you see how important this is? We're called to love one another. There's an exhortation to love. The extent of love is he died. And your life, my life, ought to be a perpetual sacrifice to that end. First John, look at 4, 4, chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. You can't get away from it, can you? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You say, how do you know if someone's born of God? How do you know if someone knows God? It's certainly not by what we say, but it's our based in our ability both to love Christ vertically and to love our neighbor and even these brothers and sisters in this church horizontally. Listen, Kurt, we had just up there. Kurt, can you imagine if your church put this into practice? I mean, this is what marks a church out, certainly to be doctrinally uh, precise, but what marks a church is our love for one another. This is, what the, this is what happens when you abide in Christ. It's established in love, but it's shared in community. Look at 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Look at 4.12. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. It's matured in us. Go down to 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment, verse 21, we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his, what? His brother. This is vital. So listen, here's pillars of a relationship. When you abide in Christ and he abides in you, it's established in the Trinitarian love that he provided. But secondly, it's shared in community. And there's an exhortation to love. And there's an extent of love. And, and let me show you this. Go back to John for one second in 1335. Remember after he gave that new commandment in John 1334, he says, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now watch this in John 1335. By this, all people will know. They'll know that Grace Church of the Valley, they'll know that you're his disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. But, but you might say, um, I mean, that's proof of it, isn't it? Four legs of a chair, at least at the beginning. One of those is a relational aspect that you love God, but you here love other people. But you might say, how do I put that into practice? I mean, how do I display that kind of love practically? The Puritans used to say, preaching ought to go from the head to the heart to the hands. And, and you might be saying, okay, Scott, that's the exhortation, but how? Okay, let me give you 40 ways, okay? To live out that type of love and community. I won't be long here. But, if, but just in case you're saying. Hey um, I'm glad we're learning doctrine. No I'm going to give you 40 ways. To put this into practice. Okay. And the 40 ways that we're going to do that. Is there's 40 commands in scripture. To live out this type of love in community. And by the way when I give you these. I'm being brief on what I could do. Okay. You say, why did you pick 40? I don't know. I just picked 40. I had 50, but there's 40. And don't forget that we love because he first, what, loved us. But imagine what your family would be like. Imagine what our youth group would be like. Imagine what men's ministry would be like and women's ministry. Number one, you're called to love one another. Number two, you're called to love one another. Number three, you're called to love one another. I think it's interesting that it starts there and it finishes there. That's agape love. That, those are exhortations. Number four, you're to love one another with brotherly affection. In other words, when you come into this place, you ought to be looking people in the eye and loving people with a brotherly affection. They're part of your family. They are your family. How about this? Number five, you're to outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12, 10. Can you imagine what this place would be like if we came inside here and we wanted to put that into practice every day that we just said, hey, you're more important than me. You're more important than me in, in this home whether it's this church or your family. And my goal as I wake up today is to outdo you in loving you. Can you imagine what would happen to our church?
Can you imagine? Go to the next slide. I, I can't go too long. You're to live in harmony with one another. But I remember one time at a church that I pastored, one man walked up to another man, and the one man put his hand out, and the other guy couldn't shake his hand. And heaven wept. Heaven wept. You mean I got a brother in my body and another brother in my body, and one brother sticks his hand out to shake the hand of another brother, and the other brother can't put his hand out? That can't happen in this place. We're called to love each other. Remember Romans 13 says, Owe nothing to any man except to love one another. Imagine this, number eight, don't pass judgment on one another. We're family, and so we're going to talk to each other. We're going to go to each other. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Can you imagine what would happen? That the experience that you have in your heart of God Almighty forgiving your sin in Christ has welcomed you into his family. You're to welcome other people. And listen, I'm not trying to exhort you. There's some of you who put this into practice every week, every day. I mean, we ought to wake up with that kind of mindset in our home, in our community. We're to greet one another with a holy kiss except if you're a single guy and you're looking to date a single girl. But you see the point there, number 10? It's a point of affection, go on. And by the way, if you're not getting these, I printed these for you at the hub because I thought you would want them, right? If you want these 40 ways, don't worry about writing them down. They're out at the hub at the little carousel. Have the same care for one another. In other words, he's talking about the body of Christ there. The eye can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. The foot can't say, you know, to the mouth, I have no need of you. We ought to have the same care for one another, whether we're gifted or whether we do something behind the scene. We're to greet one another. There it is again with a holy kiss. We're through love. We're to serve one another. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In other words, that you bite and devour one another. 15, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What would happen if in our church and in our family and in our representative ministries, there was no conceit, no provoking, no envying? Go on to the next one. Bear with one another's burdens. There's some of you who come in this morning with a great burden. Imagine what that would be is if you who were sensitive, and this does happen, I just wanted to excel still more, you bore one another's burdens. It doesn't even have to be church. What if you're pushing the cart at Save Mart, and you see somebody, and you haven't seen them in a long time? Do you just hide and go down the next aisle? Or, or do you just say, I know that person, they're in our church, but they're, they don't look like they have joy. Well, listen, you might be able to bear their burden with one another. Kurt, just being honest with you, I want to bear your burden, brother, because I had people in my pastoral ministry that took Patty and I under their arms. One of those guys is Chris Mueller. He just loved on us. Another guy was John MacArthur. He just loved on me because this thing is hard to do. And those guys, I had some friends and family just own us. And so I, I get that. And then when you get built up by that, you want to help somebody else. You're to be kind to one another. You're to forgive one another. How does the guy not put his hand out you're to address one another psalms hymns spiritual songs go on 20 to submit to one another you're to count others how about that one in philippians 2 3 more significant than yourself wow can you imagine what would happen in the business culture if this happened it doesn't often happen because people are climbing on top of each other but we're the church you're commanded to love one another how do i do that you count others as more significant than yourself when you walk in, you don't think, here I am. You walk in and say, there you are. Can you imagine what would happen to our church? I'll tell you this. 
If this type of love went out, we'd probably have to have three services in this place. So what are you talking about, Scott? I, I just think if we loved people genuinely, this place would fill up and we'd have to fill it up again and again. And I'm not trying to say that as some kind of thing we have to do. But I just think people are dying to be part of something. I was watching March Madness yesterday. I don't know if this is good. And uh, probably shouldn't say it. It's nowhere in my notes. And they were warming up. And I saw, I don't know what team it was. Um, it said family on it. And I walked by. Because i I usually too antsy to getting ready for Mexico. Getting ready for the message next week. I walked by and I'm kind of like, family. Oh, brother. They're, they're trying to create a sense of community on a ball team. I get that. If you're a coach, I'm not trying to be offensive. But you can do that on a basketball team, but in this place, you don't talk to each other. In this place, you don't reach out to one another. You are the family of God. You are brothers and sisters bound together, saved and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are, and I am, exhorted to love one another. Can you imagine if we all did that? Can you imagine if we came in and we looked at others as more significant, if we came in teaching one another, 24, bearing with one another, admonishing one another. In other words, you're not just doing syrupy stuff. You might have to go after someone's sin. Next slide. Uh, encourage one another. You're building up one another. It's the word for construction. You're exhorting one another every day, okay? You're, you're stirring one another to love and good works, what if this was the husband's role with the wives? You're not speaking evil against one another. Next slide. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Keep loving one another. I like this earnestly. Just, you just keep working at it. Do you have somebody that doesn't return love to you? Well, then you just keep loving them earnestly. Because if you go look at that passage... Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And the last one is, look there. If you have a gift, use it to serve one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And then there it is again in 1 John. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. It says, does John, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. Imagine what we could become, amen?